Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number 19 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And Ray Herto, HRV Homes. We're here today with our guest. Mike Procopio, the Procopio Companies. Awesome, Mike. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, no problem. Fought the traffic from Saugus or you had an appointment in the city? I was in the city. Or you were meeting with a, a Gray star. leasing group, right? Yeah. So, so they, they do, they've got, they've got a development arm too, but we work with their, um, we work with their leasing people a lot on bigger stuff. Cool. So cool. gearing up for Lynn. Nice. So they're going to do all the lease up for the, for your new project? Yeah. Yeah. They'll, so they'll do, they'll do lease up. They'll do the management. They'll do all the marketing on the front end. And then realistically, until we cycle out of the deal, they'll kind of be the manager in place over there. What project is this? So it's the Caldwell. We're doing a 10 story high rise, downtown Lynn, um, 230,000 square feet, resi. 259 units, 10,000 feet plus minus of uh, ground floor retail restaurant, kind of a eclectic mix of stuff. It's a crazy project. It's a big project. And Graystar, we talked to a bunch of different firms and Graystar really got their heads wrapped around it really early, which we needed. We needed someone to kind of validate our assumptions and stuff like that. And they I think were, they, they really good block too. Yeah. 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 Or the Troy, one, one of them. And they're, oh, doing a, they're doing a bunch of stuff in, um, they're doing a bunch of stuff in Revere right now, mm-hmm. 50 Ocean Boulevard, a bunch of other stuff down there. So in that market, really good. How has Lynn been to deal with? Lynn's awesome. Yeah. Lynn, Lynn has like, well, I guess let's be clear. Like Lynn has like a city and like approvals and zoning and stuff like that is awesome, right? There's no, there's no better place you're going to work. There's just, the by right zoning is crazy. Our, our zoning on that site is 10, is by right, 10 stories, zero lot line, uh, zero parking requirement, 120 feet in height. No, no special permit process whatsoever. Walk in, pull a permit like you're building a shed. I love the photo you guys put up on Instagram. It was, um, I believe you were walking out with your permits in Lynn and like the building commissioner, freaking maybe the mayor himself, they were all smiling, like holding yeah. the drawings in Boston. They'd be like, can you just get out of, we, there's a line still, please yeah. move yeah. on, sir. Just give us your money. Yeah. They were very excited to get an $850,000 check yeah. for one building. So they were, Dude. yeah, they, they've been really awesome to deal with. So we, um, they do have a site plan review, but it has no T, it, it's completely non-binding. It's just advisory to the building commissioner. It usually, I mean, we've done, I've done four or five site plan reviews in Lynn. I think the longest one was 15 minutes. The most complicated question we got was, how much are these going to rent for? Like, literally, it's just this pro forma process that they walk you through. Is it a special area of Lynn? No. Uh, just, well, yeah. I mean, I mean you mean, can't that, just go anywhere and just start putting up right. 120 story. No, that, that business, that's the cent- central business district has that zoning. Yeah. But other, we've done other stuff in other parts of Lynn. We've done their R4 zone is also by right apartment buildings, you know, it's got different parking ratios and stuff, but we, our Ironwood project is in an R4 zone. It was also by right, just went in and pulled a permit. So tell us about your business. Sounds like obviously you do a lot of development apartment for rent product, but you also have a site and utility company and you, you do some general contracting. We were founded in 1950. Uh, my grandfather founded it. I'm third generation. Uh, my dad's still in the business. My brother and I bought out uh, my uncle uh, maybe two years ago, three years ago now. So my two brothers and I own the company with my dad now. We're all in the business. I've got one brother that runs the construction arm of the, of the company. I've got another brother who's, a, who's an assistant project manager. He's a structural engineer. He has his stamp. So that's kind of nice to have. And then my dad runs the whole show still. When are you going to give him a promotion to project manager? Yeah, a couple of cycles. <laughs> Make him earn it. A couple of cycles. Yeah. He's got to earn it. Well, yeah. he really, so he came in with a ton of knowledge. He came into the, he just came into the business. He's only been with us for a few months. And he's got a ton of knowledge, structural steel guy, worked at an outside firm, getting his stamp but never really saw, they did a ton of peer review stuff and a ton of repair work in, in large scale stuff, but he never really saw like the product we build start to finish and like the full cycle. So I think it's important to him to ride that whole cycle through on at least one project and kind of get the nuts and bolts of it. And then we'll, we'll, 
run them up. The especially road. especially yeah. punchless when there's closings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> are you selling? Speaking of, are you selling any of your stuff, or you just hold it? We do both. It's it's all about the, what what the numbers look like. So we built some new stuff and sold it. But we do we do work in like like a couple big buckets. So we'll do work that's development work where we own the full cycle. We get the land. We're the developer. We're the GC. And then we own it and manage it. So we're, we're doing everything. There's almost no third parties involved except for the sub-trade pool. Then we'll do some work where we're just a straight developer. So we buy it, we develop it, we get a third-party GC, we get a third-party property manager. And that's the bigger stuff, the Caldwell building in Lynn, stuff like this, a $90 million project, stuff like that. We do third-party development work, but we just work for the developer fee. So people will call us. They have a land that's been in the family for 30 years. They're not interested in selling it, but they really don't know how to walk through that process. We'll do it for a fee with them. We do third-party GC work for fee, just regular fee-based. We're doing a 100-unit um, senior housing project in Merrimack that's just fee-based. It's another developer. We're just the GC. Do you build your own stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we do. Up to probably, we would build our own stuff right now up to probably 150 units, depending on depending on the complexities of it and depending on kind of what our um, current schedule and kind of whether we would have to really staff up for it or not. Like we're not, I'm not looking to add guys and then get rid of guys. So it has to fit in with our current cycle of how we want to do stuff. So we're looking at a project in Portland that we originally started, 52 unit condo project. And um, we originally, we were going to build it. And now we're kind of in the camp of we're just going to hire someone up there to build it. And, you know, it'll be easier and cost us a little bit more, but but easier to manage the process. Random questions, speaking of hiring and whatnot. Obviously, very tough labor market here, right? Oh, ridiculous. Finding, finding yeah, good labor. So how, how do you go through that process if you are bringing somebody on board? So we will we'll recruit just kind of through all the channels. I mean, so, so my wife was a corporate recruiter for years in tech and healthcare. So we usually will have her handle it if it's kind of a, what we would call a professional position. So like supers, assistant supers, PM, stuff like that. If we're hiring labor because we do self-perform some stuff, we typically just do it on Craigslist. If we're hiring the the more white collar positions, indeed, a ton of stuff on LinkedIn, and a ton of it's just word of mouth, right? You know, somebody somebody knows somebody who's unhappy and wants to leave, or you know, the last guy we scooped a great super um, from a bigger GC, a much bigger GC, and he had just can, just gotten reassigned to a project that was like an hour and a half from his house, mm-hmm. hour and forty five minutes from his house, and he says, "This is ridiculous. Like, wh- what project will you put me on?" And we said, "We'll put you in Merrimack." Oh, great! It's twenty five minutes from my house. We'll go there. You know, so that kind of stuff is good in this industry. I mean, there's just a lot of word of mouth. One thing I think is really cool about your company is how you guys have the ability to self-perform uh, site work and utilities. Um, I always, Dan, me, Dan, and Ray are always just bantering about how we'd it's, like to buy a machine uh, and be able to do our own digging. And because uh, I have a background in estimating and and pricing work, and I get numbers back from site guys, <laughs> I can't make any sense of it. I'll take off the linear feet of sewer and and, oh, and ex, you know, cut fill calcs. I call the guys. I go. He goes. It's not going to tie out. That's my price if you yeah. want it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let yeah, me know exactly. otherwise. Yeah. And let me know by Friday because it's probably a 10% yeah. premium on next week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, it's crazy money for site work right now. Part of it's influenced by the labor pool because the labor, we find that the labor shortage, the actual in the dirt labor shortage is worse on the utility and site side than it is on the rest of it. Right. Um, I don't know whether it's just guys don't go into that business. We have a much, much higher average age on that side of the business than we do even with carpentry and like the, the typical trades. And then it's just demand. I mean, we we do a ton of third party work too, and we we can't keep ahead of it. I mean, now it's just throw the price at it, and that's that's it. And that's how that's how we really have to price things sometimes. And we still itemize everything and give guys the the breakouts, but it's it's tough. The risk is all in the dirt, and that's why we still do site work. Site work is a pain in the neck to do, but we typically cut the price in half by self performing the site. 
So I love that. I mean, if you were to graph out the amount of risk on a job, yeah. as soon as you're out of the ground and your no, foundations are going yeah. in, you, they, yeah. the curve has just shifted dramatically. Right. So if you can control that yeah. risk, you can control that change order risk, you can control that contaminated urban fill type stuff. If you can control that yourself, you're much better than paying a third party. We've spoken with a structural engineer on our, one of our earlier episodes about the importance of getting geotesting done. Obviously, on any project, that's, that's got to be uh, key to kind of understanding those costs before you oh, yeah. start opening up things. And basing on what the project is. So like, I mean, we might typically go into a site and say, well, we're going to do you know, eight or 10 test pits. And we're going to you know, locate those at the corners of the foundation and we'll classify the soils and get a handle on kind of what kind of footing system we need or if we need ground improvement, stuff like that. And if you've got a site that's inherently riskier, we're doing that project in Beverly, we had over 80 test pits on that site. Just because we knew there was some classification issues we had to get a handle on in the soils um, we knew there was a ton of contamination. It was a brownfield site. We really needed to know what was there because we couldn't, for a variety of reasons, material couldn't leave the site. It had to be dealt with on the site. So we really had to have an understanding accurately of the cuts and fills and what materials were there. And we had like 60, 65 test pits to really get a handle on that, but we did. And that paid off in spades as we did the site work because we knew what was there. We knew what we were dealing with in terms of quantities down to, you know, really, really tight numbers. Do you have any advice for developers who are hiring out the site in terms of ways which they can mitigate that risk uh, early on when they're structuring their contracts or their unit prices, uh, hourly rates, um, things that they should be considering before they go ahead and execute that, that contract? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there are. I don't think, it, I don't think it would really benefit them getting into the hourly rates and the unit prices and stuff like that because I think that's going to be all over the map with guys. But the tighter the plans are, the tighter the diligence materials are, right? The tighter the geotech report is, right? If some of that stuff is still hanging out there, that's just low-hanging change order fruit. Well, we didn't have the geotech report. Yeah. But yeah, your plans, we had a 60% set. That's what we bid this on. So why would the price not go up 40%, right? I mean, that's, it's not that that's what everybody wants to do, but that's the, that's the low-hanging fruit, right? If we have to price something that we didn't catch, we're just going to immediately tag it as, well, you gave us a 60% permit set. I mean, what, of course. What's nice is if you can pre-characterize the site. So you grid out the site like a checkerboard, and each grid can be no larger than X, and you test the soil in each part of that checkerboard. And in doing so, you should know with a large degree of certainty what type of soil needs to go where and how much that will cost, and it'll leave you a lot less susceptible. Right. And really, I mean, the real, the real benefit to the pre-characterization is understanding any export, right? Because if the stuff's staying on site or if it's just typical fill that you're going to sell to somebody or give away for free to somebody, that's almost irrelevant. But where it comes down to urban stuff and urban fill, I mean... Should we, should we tell, talk about urban fill just in case? Yeah. Yeah. So city of Boston, it's all built on landfills. Land, uh, you know... And essentially, it's just what it sounds like. It's fill, it's garbage. You'll be digging and you'll come across uh, a tire you know, wood, brick, stuff which certainly is not in virgin apple Other houses, ash, yeah. houses, old foundations, just everything that's junk that at some point got either trucked in as landfill or in some cases there was a previous building there that they smashed down and pushed into the hole and built right on top of it and now you're excavating it and trying to, you know, A, get rid of the material and B, arrive at some sort of structural medium on which to, you know, build your house or your development. And is that different than organics as um, well? It, it is different, certainly. Yeah. I mean, neither, is almost like sludge. Neither have great um, characteristics with regards to how much load they can support or, or, or bearing capacity, but organics is, you know, there by God and, and urban fill is all man-made. And it all comes to how you can dispose of it. And typically the organics you can get rid of, you can strip it and export it for nothing sometimes. 
the urban fill, you've got to send you've got to send to a place that accepts it, and it, it could have other contaminants in it. A lot of times, you find that you know contaminants like lead and and nickel and kind of these heavy metals that aren't really an issue, but they are because they are what they are, right? So you know DEP says they're an issue, so now you have to send them to a place that'll take them. Our site in Lynn, for instance, we sent you know roughly five hundred thousand dollars worth of contaminated stuff off site. No major contamination. It was typical urban fill stuff and some typical of those kind of asbestos, old oil and stuff like that, some old tanks and stuff. We had to send it to Bourne. So we're trucking because no landfills. Bourne, Michigan? No, Bourne, Massachusetts. But that's, if you think of (laughs) it. I was like, whoa. Bourne, Michigan. I I want nothing to do with Bourne, Michigan. Is there Bourne? I think there's a, I I believe there's there's a ski way. I think there's a ski way in Michigan called Bourne. Yeah, I definitely would not have been sending it there. I went to school in Indiana and, you know, I think we used to ski on those garbage heaps. In Michigan. I would hope so there'd be somewhere closer. <laughs> yeah. But send it to Bourne. I mean, but just think about that. How many trucks can you run a day from Lynn to Bourne? Right. Like, that's a ridiculous round trip. Was there something there it's before? $10,000 a load. Mm. So it's just, oh. it's that type of stuff. It adds up. So if you don't pre-characterize that and you suddenly discover that you need to export 75 truckloads at $10,000 a load. You're in trouble. It's, in, it's significant. It's significant. And in some projects, you've got that contingency to handle that, but in most of them, you don't. Was there a building there before in Lynn or was there yeah, just an empty lot? When, when we bought it, it was a parking lot and a community garden. I'm not sure I would have wanted to been eating anything out of that community <laughs> garden, considering the stuff that we found in the dirt. But previously, it was factories. So I mean, okay. there was five different shoe factories on that site at one point in time. There was all the typical stuff you would find with that. There was It had its own uh, power generating plant there in the 1800s. A huge, huge, massive steam engine and pulley system that powered all the buildings. So, I mean, all that kind of typical stuff was in the ground. Can we talk about another major challenge with going into the ground, which is, um, you know, groundwater? Yeah. So your borings will also indicate you'll put a test well in, which is just what it sounds like, and it'll tell you over time uh, where the groundwater is uh, in relation to the surface. So how deep you have to go before you're going to encounter it. And when you do encounter it, you can't just put a sump pump in there and take all that out through via a fire hose and drop it into a catch basin. Uh, Why not? You, well, you, you can. You will but, be fined. Yeah. A frack plant huge. is probably what you probably want yeah. to have on it. Yeah. I mean, in truth, you got to treat it all. Yeah. In truth, it, it is really a, a, a nuisance to the public. If you do that, <laughs> you, 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 all that sedimentation no, is going to, well, for everyone's benefit, <laughs> you, you might see it as water just coming through and not understand, but really there's a ton of, a ton of sedimentation and that will clog up the infrastructure for the city. And yeah. And when you're, when you're doing smaller stuff, I mean, it's typical. We used to do a lot of single family houses. That's where our business had its genesis. And you come to water in the hole, you throw up sludge pump in and you pump it right onto the street and that that's acceptable um, in that type of an environment. That's never going to work in an urban project where you're dewatering, you know, hundreds of thousands of gallons. You know, you have to be, you have to be cleaning it. You have to be filtering. You have to be discharging it properly. You have to be paying the right permits on it. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. So geotech engineer could help you secure those permits for the EPA. Now, are you, are you holding your projects long-term or are you building it leasing them up, you know, stabilizing it, and then selling it. Both. And it, it depends on what the returns are. So some, we, we have a long-term goal for a number of units that we want to have, and we, we would like to hold more than we have in the past. We cycled out of almost 100 units last year um, that were older stock. They were uh, like C-class apartment buildings and stuff that we had, and they were kind of ready for that value-add play, but that's not the space we're in. So we kind of made the decision, let's just get rid of them. Our Ironwood project's 100 units. We've decided to hold that. We've put long-term debt on that. That's really advantageous with where rates are. Needham's Landing was 42 units. We sold that immediately on stabilization. We just flipped out of it. It allowed us to put money into other stuff. The market was just right for it. So it all, it all depends. Like the big project, like the Caldwell, that has institutional investors. So our equity investor in that is the Carlisle Group. They're 
uh, they're a closed end fund. They operate on a three year, you know, build, stabilize, sell. That's just how their model works. They don't consider tax issues. They don't consider anything. That's just how they work. So likely that'll get sold, you know, at stabilization just to get them out. Despite the fact that I'd like to hold that, it's just the economics would have to be really, really great to be able to buy them out of it. Have you considered starting your own fund? Yeah. So I literally have a, you know, what the lawyers are calling a fund questionnaire sitting on my desk at home to go through. So we would like to raise $50 million, which is tiny in the fund world, but perfect for what we do. The average equity check that we go out looking for is about $5 million. That Caldwell project was $20 million. If you're up in that $20 million space, there's a lot of options because the institutional guys, that's where they play. That's the check size they want, 18, 20, 22 million bucks. Um, There's not a lot of guys in that $5 million range to take it down with one check. So we've really struggled to raise the money in, in there. We end, what we end up doing is doing projects with our own money, which we don't like because we end up having more tied up in it than we want, which restricts the ability to go after new projects. So we're looking at raising a fund that would just be an opportunity fund that we can go take down projects with. The, fir- the other thing that we're doing that guys laugh at me because this is how everybody does it, but it's the first time for us. We've never raised friends and family money um, ever. <laughs> third we, generation. We have, yeah. yeah, third generation. Mm-hmm. We have never raised friends and family money. We have contacts everywhere and we've just never c- kind of cobbled together that investor group just because it's always seemed like a bother. We're probably going to do our Portland project that way. You know, it's a small raise. It's like 3 million bucks. And we think we can get that put together pretty good, you know, especially if we're showing guys a 40 IRR. So <laughs> I aspire yeah. to grow up one day and be a lender. Yeah. That's nice. <laughs> awesome. It's, it's say, ridiculous. Say uh, Mark, Dan, and I want to do something like this because you obviously have, have a pretty deep Rolodex, but how does somebody get started with going after institutional funds? Are there Fun, are there brokers that kind yeah. of have those contacts or where does somebody reach out to? Is it through the attorneys? So so we chose to go the broker route. Um, we talked to a bunch of different capital brokers that are active in Boston. In our view, it narrowed down very quickly. We work, we've done a bunch of deals now with the guys at Collier's. Their capital markets group is, is incredible, but it's also, you know, I mean, they do smaller deals too, but it's also, it's also big money. I mean, they're going after some big name groups and it was a huge, huge learning curve for me and for our team. Um, to go from our own money, kind of one tab, one sheet, Excel reporting to like a million lines by a million columns. You know, it takes five minutes to open the file. And this is what we now have to report upstream with. But what it did is it, it made us put systems in place. And now that we have an institutional investor in that project, we're able to take the lessons learned and kind of the systems from that project and apply it to much smaller projects and they run way smoother. So we're taking all the stuff that we did on that $90 million project. You know, we have a, one project accountant assigned to it, specific. The only guy that touches it, one guy. Um, we have internal controls as to how we do the finance, financial reporting on that. It's audited financial, stuff like that. We're now taking that and applying it to our Beverly project, $25 million project. And all those same things do the same, they add the same value, right? They're, they're incredible for like the systems and just the way we track it and the way we're able to report even to ourselves. Nice. So we used a uh, debt brokerage team, um, formerly HFF. Yeah, so they were- Now bought by JLL. Yeah. Um, on a pro on a large project downtown recently, and it was not my first experience working through that, and it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so they they charge they charged us one percent of everything they raised on which, debt or equity on uh, on debt. Yeah, and then they sort of broke it down like an estimator presents you the different bids for site work, yep. um, a big spreadsheet, and they matrix. leveled everybody off and showed yep. you you know where your risks were. This guy is no recourse, and helped us really find the right bank. And they went out to 
the Bank of the Ozarks was yeah, super right. competitive. Oh, on they're this huge. Deal. They're huge yeah. in construction, ground off construction. Is that, yeah, Bank of the Ozarks. Shows how naive yeah. I am. Yeah. I was like, yeah, whoa. Yeah, yeah no, you get these crazy names and you get even local banks you've never heard of, but they're huge, huge, huge players in this. Um, 50, I don't know how many they went out there. I mean, typical is like go to 50, 60 banks. They put together and this show you like 10 or 12 yeah. term sheets exactly. in a matrix. Yeah. And just like a leveling sheet, you know, when you're looking at a sub, they'll do that exact same process and be like, yeah, this guy looks really good up here. But by the time you level them all off, it's not a great deal. Yeah. Step one, they they, yeah. they build this beautiful opera, um, offering memorandum yeah. and uh, send the it book. out. Just blast it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they only want 1% of what they raise on that? They, well, they only, I think it's a lot. But yeah, so <laughs> well, it seems numbers. like a lot of work, doesn't they, it? It's a ton of work. So we think they're really worth it. So we do, we have guys in, in-house that, that do the models and everything like that too. So we can do all that ourselves. The Rolodex that they open it up to is just insane. And they know who, the, the good part of those guys is they know who to talk to at which bank. They know who the deal maker is. So instead of just calling a bank and trying to get somebody, they know, no, this is the guy you want to talk to. This is the guy that's going to get over the hurdles and get a deal done at whatever bank. Um, they typically get 1% on debt and 2% on equity. The equity is a bit of a heavier lift. There's way more involved on the front end of modeling and walking people through the diligence and stuff like that. Can we just um, walk people through what you mean by that? So 1% on the debt, 2% on the equity. So is that in terms of how the deal is structured? Uh, right. The investor... Yeah, so, so let's take a deal. Let's take our Lynn deal because it's just an easy example. So it's like a $90 million project, $85 million project. So we went out and we got 77% debt on it. So roughly $63 million. So they arranged that. They put two banks together to do that deal. Square Mile and CIT, both out of New York, put them together for $63 million. They got paid one. They got paid $630,000 on that debt piece. That can was we, their fee. Can we stop there for a second? Yeah. Did, did they have to um, execute an interbank lending agreement? Uh, they already had it in place. They did. That's yeah, which nice. was so they were oh both in, both Square Mile and CIT were independently bidding on our deal for the whole the whole slog of the debt until they realized that they were both bidding on the deal and then they like ganged up oh. and decided to do it together because they had an inner creditor already in place. My experience, it was like watching your parents fight. Yes. It was like you know yeah. I'm in the middle just yes. wanting to get to a yes. closing table yes. and they're like I'm not doing it if you don't if you don't yeah. agree to this and I'm like guys yeah. please yeah that's the downside of having a couple of banks involved. So to close those loans, we had over seven hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. Just is there an advantage? Can we say that again? How much? $700,000 in legal fees. So more... It's, that's, that is real. That is the one line item in this last project that I had not accounted yes, for. It's insane. And that's no. more than the point. Every, the yes. Every bank involved. So us, our lawyers, and both of the lender's lawyers were at least $200,000 each in legal fees to get us through the closing. Very sophisticated law firms. Very, yeah, oh, and huge. you as the borrower are paying for every everyone day. else's lawyers. <laughs> that day. is what yeah. really just, yeah. I couldn't wrap my head around. Is like, and yeah. every time, so uh, I interrupted you. Well, I mean, the you're getting so, so the alternative, You're getting so bad. The alternative is you go raise it yourself. Good luck. No, it, that, and that's the thing. And you won't get it done, right? And that's like, I used to, everybody used to laugh at me because I'd get on these status calls, right? And on the status call, there's like 40 lawyers. And like, I, I can't help it, right? I'm a deal guy. So I'm adding this up and I'm like, hey, this, the, the hourly rate on this call is like 20 grand. <laughs> and, they're like, and they're like talking about their weekend and what they did with their kids over the 4th of July. And I'm like, guys, this, we got to get this show on the road. Like, oh, uh, excuse me, gentlemen. Yeah. Can we get, yeah. The, uh, yeah. get this moving? Yeah. And they would, always laugh at us. they would always laugh at us and be like, well, you're the guys that are, you guys have the most expensive lawyers. No, at the end of the day, they weren't the most expensive yeah. lawyers. You know, everybody else had the expensive lawyers. So, right, so I interrupted you, 77% so, was so, debt. Right. And then, so equity, equity is not debt. So equity, when we talk about equity investment, it's cash into the deal from an investor. So that investor could be us. It could be you. It could be, you know, grandma. It could be a cobbled together group of small investors that come up with a couple million bucks. Or in, in the case of that project, it was an institutional investor, the Carlisle Group. They're a, they're a, they're a big fund. 
um, one of the biggest in the world, and they wrote an equity check of roughly twenty million dollars into that project. Now they don't get you know they don't get paid like debt where they get paid monthly. They make their money on the back end just like we do as the developer. So then through the through the promote structure and the waterfall, which we could really get into the weeds and explaining to people what that really is, but through that structure. They get their return, and then we, as a developer, get a get an increased return as we hit different metrics. So at the end of the day, we're incentivized to really make the project perform. They hit their minimum returns and then get a little gravy. We get a lot of gravy, basically, is how the promote right. structure works. And and if you own the land, if you're fortunate enough that that land was just in your family, yep. can that be appraised yep. and then included in that equity slog? Sure, yeah. It, it depends on the lender and depends on how they structure it. So slug. Landmark, slug, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, slug. Land, so we call that a land markup and that's really common if you've got a piece of land that even if it wasn't in your family. So that Lynn land, we bought for 3 million and appraised it in two months for 10 million. Wow. Was so that if you because buy you something had permits like, on it and, and it was now worth it, that much more? Or it, Yeah, it was just because they was, it was undervalued, right? And we yeah. saw value where nobody else saw value. And everybody else looked at that land and thought, you know, previous buyer said, well, we're going you know, to put a school on it. And then another buyer thought, well, we're going to put a four-story apartment building on it. And we came in and said, no, we're going to go 10 stories, 120 feet, zero lot line. We're going to build a real urban apartment building here because we think the market calls for it. And suddenly you've got unit yield there at... You know, there's only so much they can discount Lynn in an appraisal. At the end of the day, this stuff still sells for forty five, fifty thousand dollars a key. So you can't discount it that much when it's selling for that in Revere. Um, and we got that appraisal. We marked it up. That's how we got to seventy seven percent, because it really a lot of that was not fake, but it's sort of phantom equity. You know, there's a six million dollar slug in there that isn't actually real money that they're lending on. So you, I, I guess, I have a two part question. You talk about. You know, you've talked about Lynn, you've talked about Portland, Maine, you've talked about Beverly. So are you going, what's your geographic area that you like to develop in? You know, I haven't really heard you talk much about the downtown Boston core. Are you kind of new, all of New England? Are you, where are you at in terms of your? So I would say traditionally we've been north of the pike inside 495. Now we're breaking out of that a little bit. Obviously Portland, we really like. That's Southern Maine market. We really like Portsmouth, New Hampshire. We don't have any projects there, but it's a very similar feel to Portland. We like those markets a lot. We would do, we would do anything in the affluent areas of Southern New Hampshire. Um, the stuff that's happening in Salem is really great and, and Atkinson. And those are some really nice areas with a lot of, we see a lot of demand, particularly for like condo product. We're looking at deals in Connecticut and we would look at deals anywhere, I think, at this stage. Our issue with Boston is the typical size project we do is too big for us to do in Boston because of the other, because I run afoul of the unions and I would run afoul of the the BRJP stuff. My projects are typically over 50,000 square feet. I'm subject to all sorts. Even if I buy a fully entitled project, I'm subject to all these other onerous requirements that I just don't have the time for and don't have the, I don't, I don't want to, you know? Is it, is it, is it all residential? Have you looked at anything industrial, office? Resi. We're resi guys. Yeah. You know, I do commercial when it's forced upon me to do commercial. Yeah. Right. You will put commercial on the first floor. Okay. I'm not going to like it, but I'll put it there. I just stay, I stay in my lane. And there's a lot of guys, I've got a really good friend who does really, really well in light industrial stuff. And a lot of the flex space that we're seeing pop up on the 495 quarter now, I just don't know it. And at this point in my career to like, say, I'm going to take five years to learn about flex industrial space when maybe that's not going to be the thing in five years. So I like resi. I think we're significantly under producing resi, right? The targets that have been set, even just in the city of Boston for 70,000 additional units, like we can't, we, we, we're never going to produce that. So there's a huge demand there for it. I don't see a significant amount of downside risk in the market. I like that lane. And then my second part to that question is, is where and how are you finding your deals? A mix of, uh, most of it would be word of mouth. 
some of it would be on market stuff where we look at a, we look at a deal that for some reason has some sort of risk that is scaring everyone else off. We bought the Beverly deal. It had a bunch of bidders on it, but it was significant. It's a waterfront deal, opportunity zone fund we put it into in Beverly. Um, but it was the site of the number one manufacturing facility in the Manhattan Project. So it was hot, literally hot through from like the 40s to like the 80s. The DOE came in in the 90s and did a massive uranium cleanup, $11 million. Talk, to, talk about export costs. They took, yeah. it all to, they took it all to Utah and dumped it down a mountain. Seriously. Are you serious? Yeah, dead serious. So, so it scared people. It scared lenders. We had to take it down cash. Nobody wanted to be in the chain of title. We had a really solid plan to clean it up. We had an LSP that had been involved with the land for like four years, five years. LSP? Uh, licensed site professional. Got it. So they're the guys that handle, they're the guys licensed by the state to handle environmental cleanup and supervise it. We were very confident in the plan. No one else was confident in the plan. But at the end of the day, we were right. And it's clean. You know, we, we closed on that in, in the beginning of March. It's clean now. We're doing regular site work up there. There's no restrictions. There was no uranium found. There was, it was asbestos. That was the contaminant. Got a little bit of nickel and lead. But it was a complicated site that scared everyone. But that was an on-market site. We just participated in a normal process. We, sales guys showed it to us and we said, ah, we like it. And when a site Imagine is- if you found uranium there. You know, go do your next deal, <laughs> next deal in Chernobyl. There's a lot of land out there. Yeah. yeah. Significantly underpriced. We, we have an expert <laughs> Really, on, really yeah. inexpensive. Yeah. So did they That's give crazy. you a... Uh, I love it. Did you guys watch that on HBO? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Oh, uh, I haven't That yet. is I one heard of the best insane. series I've... Sh- it, it's, it's fantastic. Nothing will, nothing will infuriate you more than watching the way that the state responded to that, right? Oh I mean, my like, God. It's government at its best. Yes. Uh, and if you watch the show, listen to the accompanying podcast. The director and producer do a, a little podcast for each episode and it'll blow your mind. So really? they explain yeah, things they, that were a little more fictitious yeah. versus... It was very true to, uh, I won't give much away, but it was very true to count. So you're saying that no one would give a title on it. So when you clean it up, what do you get a certificate or something saying, yeah, it's good now. And then people will accept it or. Yeah. So we get what's called. So we've already got, it was all about the risk in the dirt, right? So it was, they just, there was certain banks that didn't want to be in the chain of title. We finally found a construction lender who was comfortable with where we had brought it to. They had a reliance letter from the LSP that basically said, look, this is done. We're, we're done with this. At the end of the day, we'll have an AUL. So a, an activity and use limitation restriction on part of the site, on part of the parking lot, because we had to bury the stuff on site. We couldn't export a lot of it. It's just asbestos. It's only dangerous if it's airborne. So burying, it's a typical solution that you can do on site, but we'll have what DEP calls a permanent solution and no restrictions on what we can do with the property. No restrictions for commercial or industrial. It's just, it'll be a resi, typical luxury, high-end resi waterfront complex. Can you explain some of the risk that you think the other lenders perceived in being named in that chain of title? We think most of it was headline risk. So we think a lot of local lenders remember the site. They remember when people discovered that it was radioactive. They remembered when the DOE came in there with Mar Construction and did a $12 million cleanup. They remember the train loads of dirty soil leaving and going to Utah. You know, they remember when there was guys up there doing a doing test pits for a previous buyer, you know, four or five years ago, and they hit a they hit an abandoned pipe and it and it caught fire and the site was on fire with this huge plume of and what it turned out to be was just trapped methane gas, but they remember all this drama around that site. And, you know, we would have loan officers that looked at it and they were like, yeah, this deal metrics look great. We'll get this. And they would like do like the soft committee and they come back and be like, yeah, the they bank doesn't, want to, the bank doesn't yeah. want to be in the chain of title, yeah. <laughs> you know? But we finally found one of our kind of higher leverage, higher cost go-to local banks that finally got comfortable with it and said, we're, this looks like a good deal. You've got it like 99% clean at this point. There's not a lot of other risk in the ground. And we give them an environmental indemnity on stuff like that. So when we're comfortable with it, we'll sign off and we'll indemnify the bank on the, on the environmental stuff. So not every project, we have to be really comfortable with it. But in one like that, where we've de-risked significantly, there's no risk left in the ground. They want a, an indemnity agreement, we give it to them. Can we talk about underwriting? 
for a little bit? Yeah. You know, how, how are you underwriting deals? You know, what typical returns are you looking for? Can we talk a little bit about your build costs? You know, I think those, those would be interesting for people to hear just because, you know, it'd be interesting to see what your costs are on resi, you know, outside of the city. So two parts. So let's deal with, let's deal with underwriting. First, I think that's important. So when we say underwriting, we obviously mean how we assess a deal and how we decide whether or not to proceed with a deal. And then another part of that is once we've decided to proceed, we have to assess the, the potential weaknesses so we know we can mitigate them with a lender or an equity partner. You know, what are the risks that they're going to see in our pro forma? So we have a pretty robust process. So we, we take a first pass at it. We model it out. We'll, we'll model it a bunch of different ways. We'll model it for a three-year um, build, stabilize, sell. What does that look like for returns? We'll model a 10-year hold. What does that look like for returns? We'll model a condos if that's an option. And if it's, if it's starting as a condo deal, we'll model the, the rental aspect of it. Just in case. Just in case. Yeah, we want to have all three of those buttoned up. When we very rarely, Lynn is the only exception where we do a deal that would never work as condos because the sale market is not there, but the rental market is. And it's one of very, very few exceptions. I would not do another condo deal. Condo deal in Portland, condo deal in Wilmington right now. Both of them have to work as rentals or we will not do the deal. Condo market's frothy. You know, it's just frothy. It's the first part of the real estate market that takes it on the chin. And we just, we have to have a backup there. And for a building that size, how are you looking at size of the units, the mix of the units, that sort of thing? How important is that? It's, it's super important. We typically, we typically size for apartments unless we think there's a high likelihood of a condo conversion, in which case we would look at that a little bit. And we typically see a two, 150 to 200 foot square foot spread between an apartment size and a condo size. And for context, like our downtown Lynn stuff, that's a transit development. It's directly across the street from Central Square T-Station. Studios, 400 to 500 square feet. One bedrooms, uh, 590 to 700 square feet. Two bedrooms, 990 to like 1050. So small units, but not micro units. Now, are you doing but, any townhouses? Yeah, um, yeah, where, where we can. So okay. we, we've got a, a development in Wilmington that's in the approvals process that has a 50 unit or a a 35 unit building and a bank of like 10 or 12 townhouses. And we like, we like those, that product in more affluent communities where we can get really good pricing on the townhouses, right? If we're building a townhouse and can only sell it for 350, it's not worth it. We, we will use the flats because they get the same money. But if we're building in a community where you could sell the townhouse for 800, 900, a million bucks all day long, we can do that because you're building them for 250 or 300. But back to underwriting. So we'll, we'll typically look at a bunch of different metrics for how we assess the deal. We'll look at cash on cash. What is the literal return on our money that we're putting in? What is the return I'm getting is if I took the same amount of money and put it in the bank or put it into Apple stock? What's my cash on cash return? And what are you looking for there? That's not our primary metric. So we sort of just use that as like a, as okay. like a, as like a does this look okay? Yeah. It's sniff usually, test. It's usually significantly test. higher than I think people would think. It's a high return we would look for from that. We'll look at return on cost, unleveraged return on cost. So that's the first year return on the cost if there was no debt involved. And we would look at for that to be between anything above a seven would be a home run. Typically between a six and a seven is where stuff pencils that we're comfortable with. That that metric is extremely important to institutional investors. They're going to look at unleveraged return on cost. We look at IRR and we look at equity multiple. So our equity multiple that we're typically looking for is between six and eight times our money in the deal um, over whatever the deal is. So that that can be one of those things that shifts if it's a three-year deal or a 10-year deal. That could significantly shift the performance because we're still looking for that multiple regardless of the length of the deal. And we typically can achieve that. And we'll look at IRR, um, which <laughs> IRRs, IRRs may be the most important metric to the institutional investors because it's a time-sensitive, it's a time-sensitive return calculation based on how and when your money goes into the deal. 
And we'll typically be able to return to in, <clears throat> investors. It depends on the deal. Most institutional guys are looking for the, the, the 18 to 21 IRR mark. And we're easily able to achieve that on some shorter condo deals. Our condo deal in Portland that we're about to raise on, that's a 45% IRR for the investor. And it's a 200% IRR for us. Our downtown Lynn deal, that's like an 8x multiple for us. Probably close to a 200% IRR, 200, 220% IRR for us. And probably a 23, 24% IRR for our investors. I'll invest in your in your fund. Done. <laughs> yeah. Done. I'm done developing. I'm just yeah, kidding. done. <laughs> No, that's and what that's, is the smallest amount you have done? Didn't he say it was like five million or no. something? No, no. If I'm doing a fund, I have to be less than that. I think oh, okay. I think fifty grand is all. Oh, I have yeah, to as long as you're an investor, right? I'm going to borrow and then there's some you know, gray borrow areas again. There, but yeah, I can yeah. arbitrage this. There you go. You make the spread. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to go seek out friends so and family. You, yeah, that, see, and that's what I'm looking for. Middle. I want to find yeah. a guy that'll do all the legwork on the friends and family. Find someone with a great network, and I you take the spread. That's what the big funds. That's why I'm doing the podcast. Just yeah. They're hidden agenda. So everybody yeah. reach out to Mark, give him your money. He's going to yeah. make more money with it. And you can go into Portland for 45% IRR. <laughs> Winning. Done. Yeah. Excellent. Appreciate no, that. So, and then, so the underwriting is obviously the most important piece of the deal for Correct. us. And we spend a lot of time with it. We revisit it a whole bunch of times. We refresh, you know, we'll use, we'll use kind of uh, high level numbers for construction numbers to start with. We, we know really, because we do our own GC work, we have really tight numbers on what it'll cost us to build wood frame, no podium. We know what it'll cost us to build wood frame podium. We know what it will cost us to do those exact same two project types with a third party GC. What the premium is for can the we, third can party? We, can we talk about so sure. what what yeah. is your price per square foot on all stick built, and then what is your price per square foot if you have to so podium? start no podium? Yeah. So no, I have no idea what my price per square foot is. Okay, I know what my price per unit is. Okay, okay. So my price per unit typically would be two hundred below two hundred thousand for stick built no podium slab on grade. With nothing funky, right? No geo peers, none of just like you know a slab on grade and and four stories, typical grand a unit. mid to mid grade finishes or um, yeah, it's apartment. Yeah, right? mid, yeah, oh, it's apartments. Yeah, so so that's you guys. Yeah, you guys would call it mid grade because you're working in the urban Boston luxury market. When you get outside of the city, those those tend to come together much closer. And those you know, I'll have people come in and be like, "Well, this is condo finishes." I'm like, "Well, yeah, we you know there's just a." It's just a gray area. There's only so many things in an apartment that you can upgrade the finishes on. These would have quartz counters. They'd have waterfall countertops. They'd, oh, have, yeah. Yeah. they'd have tile backsplashes. They'd have tiled showers. They'd have Kohler fixtures. So, I mean, it's mid-grade. I would consider it upper end for the apartment piece. But if we're talking $2 million condos and you know the seaport, no, it's not that. And everything behind the walls is going to go in anyway, oh, regardless. Yeah. yeah. Or how yeah. about per unit for a wood but frame? Would, with but that would include like spray foaming and stuff. There's certain elements that we do because we like it in the product, and you know it's not typical. How many square feet is about is that unit that you? Yeah, call it 700 average. Okay. Right. So I mean, if if I had to off the top of my head tell you what that is square footage wise, it's probably 170. I don't. You know, that's probably about where that shakes out. Yeah. Podium adds between 30 and 40 thousand a unit. For a steel podium with a composite deck over it, if you start going into things like um, post-tension decks and stuff like that, that's going to add a little bit of a premium to it. Or podiums that are bigger than the building, right? That's pretty common sometimes with these big C-shaped or E-shaped buildings where the podium actually extends under some grass and courtyard. That's going to cost more. But a typical, you know, where the where we used to do a parking garage and then four stories or five stories over, it adds about thirty, forty thousand a unit. Nice. That's and awesome. we're, That's we're, typi- we're typically we're typically able to outperform a third party GC by twenty to thirty thousand a unit over all categories because it, we just do them leaner, right? They're gonna they're gonna sta- they're gonna overstaff typically they're gonna overstaff the projects. 
maybe it's appropriately staffed the projects and we run them lean. <laughs> I don't know, but like, you know, there's a whole bunch of assistant supers running around and a whole bunch of assistant project managers running around and project engineers. And we'll typically do a project with, you know, a, a PM and an assistant PM and a super. And that guy can, that guy can handle a 75 unit build. I mean, that's, that's pretty Now typical. those numbers you just said are you doing it or yeah, out? Or no, out? That's, that's me doing it. Oh, that's you doing it. Okay. That's me doing it. With regards to the unit mixes and the pricing, obviously you've got a team helping you there. What, what do you do to get comfort around absorption rates, sort of making sure you're not overdoing one style or if you're selling the whole building that there's not too I mean, you already mentioned that Boston's got so much demand for condos. Are you, are you not even worried? So we're, we're never worried if it's an apartment play because that's, that's just a calculation. So there's only two calculations selling an apartment building of that size. What is, you take the NOI, put a cap rate on it. Right now, north of the city, in the city, you're selling for below a five cap rate. Up where we are, we would sell for a five for class class A product. The big institutional stuff, maybe, maybe less. I mean, there's some stuff in Everett, like the Batchyard, I think sold in the, in the low fours and stuff like that. And then the like gut check on the cap rate is what's the per unit cost? You know, what's the per unit sellout? You know, and does that sort of tie out? And that should be in the, you know, high threes, 400 kind of, you know, sorry, I meant per it, unit. I meant with respect to if you're leasing up, you know, are you worried about? No, you know, doesn't no. matter the unit mixes. No, we do people all, will live there. Yeah, people, it's will new. There. people will live there. And same with the condos. Condos, no, condos, condos, we would spend a lot more time making sure the absorption um, timing is right. But yeah, in general, there's going to be demand for all those types of units because the demographic's so wide. Are there any areas that you don't look to build because you know that it's going to be more challenging on that end? In terms of within a location, you mentioned that the project in Lynn is right across the street from T, and you like other areas because of their. We love the transit. We love that. We love the emerging gateway cities. Sure. We think they're extremely underrated, extremely. So, like parts of Beverly. I mean, Beverly is one of those odd zip codes that you could have a twenty million dollar house, or you could have a hundred fifty thousand dollar house. So, we like the parts of Beverly that have been ignored. We like Lynn. We like Amesbury. We like Haverhill. Those types of kind of emerging places. Lowell. I think you'll get some really much tougher type gateway cities, like I, you'd be hard-pressed to get me into Lawrence and some of those places that have had a real hard time kind of getting traction as a place to live. Do you do anything that's not new construction? Typically, no. No? Okay. No, we've looked at them. We've looked at a bunch of mills. Yeah, and, and, that's and, where I was going with it. <laughs> we like pencil it out, and at the end of the day, it's like, we could just build this new. Like, what, what am I buying this shell of a building for that I need to spend five or six million dollars just getting safe? I like ground up. That's my shit. I think we should just follow Mike around and do small six, nine, <laughs> yeah. 10 unit buildings. Just run like, around yeah. where he's doing his yeah. Oh, the Caldwell is going to go right here. Mark I'm going to buy a building there. Mark was Iron taking notes diligently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, if you see a, a Jeep Denver. Cherokee tra- following yeah. you around, yeah. you know. I, I've, whiffed on an, I've whiffed on an awful lot of them, though. So I don't know that. What's the smallest project you'll well, do? Let's, let's talk about that. Have you guys, have you guys uh, missed the ball? Have you? Never with a building. In, Never yeah. with a building. We definitely missed the ball with single family stuff. So we did a lot of single family. Our, our bread and butter over the years was high end single family. You know, and high end, of course, changed with the times. But when we stopped doing it four four years ago, we were you know our average sale was one point two million dollars in Saugus, you know, Wakefield, that type of kind of the tight end suburbs. Um, but you can't, you can't make a lot of money on those. There's just no. You want to talk about construction costs? Get into the high end single family market and try and, and, and build a $1.2 million house and yeah. not, not lose your shirt. I mean, we made, I remember looking at some of those deals we closed out and be like, we took us a year to build this house. We made 50 grand, 40 per, grand. Like this is crazy. Wise, it's even, it's, oh, it's, it's even more it's, abysmal. It's, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal. And it takes the same amount of capacity, right? So that's, that silly single family house still ties up basically a PM and a super. 
Oh, it's when, I, when FDM in the super could be building a 15, 18, $20 million building for uh, us. I would say, in, in, your, in your Calderwood building, you have a master bath and a guest bath, and it repeats 259, 259 times. times. A big $2 million, $1.7 million single, uh, single family, you're going to have four or five different bathrooms, different tiles, grout colors. Oh, you this bathroom, this bathroom the body sprays were supposed to be three inches yeah, lower. And yeah. this bathroom, the shower head was supposed to be four inches taller because my son's six foot six. And this bathroom had the steam unit, but you didn't put it. It's just one thing after it. All that kind of stuff. So Gateway Cities are underrated. Yeah. <laughs> this leads <laughs> us into our good next segue. question. Very yes. good segue. Overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Ground improvement. Oh, underrated. You want to define it too? Uh, so if your pre-characterization of the soils shows that you have, you like the way I tied that in there? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> um, if it shows that you have unsuitable soils for your foundation or your structural system, there's a couple ways to handle it. You can over-excavate, which is remove all the bad material, put good material in, uh, beat the daylights out of it to get it structural and build. Or you can use what we call ground improvement, which would be like soil nails or friction piles or geopiers, geopiers, all that kind of stuff, which are just a variety of different ways of getting structural piles under a building. Um, and they can be made of a variety of different materials. We've used them all in the past. But it typically, if you have a site that doesn't have a lot of obstructions, it can be super, super cost efficient to have like geopiers come in and just reinforce the whole site. You use that a lot when you've got like organic materials and stuff like that. Our Linsight, that was the first plan until we realized that there was five different foundations from five different shoe factories under the ground. And we decided we were going to spend so much time dealing with obstructions that the right way to do it was to over-excavate the whole site, truck it all off, and bring, bring new material in. But I think it, typically it's, it's underrated because people don't, people don't understand what's available and what the technology can do. Wall-mounted or ceiling-mounted speakers? Overrated, both. I think the technology is just... Just buy a Sonos speaker and put it on your dresser. Yeah, sound bar. I, I, I have speakers in my house and I have not used them since I moved in. So that's 12 <laughs> years ago. So hmm. yeah, I just think they're overrated. I think one of those things that people don't care about. Problem is the buyers in the city look for them. Really? Right? It's debatable. I, 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 don't I don't know. I feel like you have so to put it So if I had to pick, I'd pick the wall. I wouldn't pick the ceiling, but I just don't, I don't think I'd put them in. Why is Are that you guys sound? Putting, what's that? Sound attenuation. Uh, certainly in an apartment building, it would be sound. In a condo building... I don't know. I just don't. I just don't think people use them. I think it's one of those pieces of technology that we're like, oh, people are going to use this. And they, are you guys they buy putting them in your speaker. high end stuff like the Mark? I put them in my own stuff because one of my best friends owns a audio video company and gives me the speakers <laughs> at cost. Uh, so it's like, well, I, about, I'd be for a hundred bucks, I'd be stupid not. Is to. that someone that someone on a sale walk though is saying, I can't buy this; it doesn't have speakers? Or what about your high end stuff in like the South End? Um, no, we're really we're really moving away from it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Good to know. Um, what about? Apartment building amenities like gyms and media rooms and all that stuff. I would, can I split the baby? I would say it's, it's appropriately rated by big time developers and extremely underrated with smaller developers that don't understand the value that it can bring. They have to be well thought out. They have to actually add value to people's lives. I would say that the number one thing that we're selling when we sell apartments is convenience to people's lifestyle. So it has to complement convenience to their lifestyle. If it's an inconvenient amenity or if it's something that they're not, they're not going to use it, right? I mean, if you have to walk across your complex to use the fitness center, you're not going to use it. You're going to get in your car and you're going to drive to Planet Fitness. But if it's in your building and it's well set up and it has all the current technology, you'll use it. It means staying on top of trends and all sorts of other stuff. And it means, you know, your management team appropriately programming the amenities, right? Well, you got a roof deck. What are you doing with it? Okay, well, we're going to do, you know, yoga on the roof every Friday morning and we're going to have, you know, a cocktail hour every, you know, Wednesday at, at 6 p.m., right? Like, whatever that looks like, you've got to make it convenient for your residents and then it adds real value. Our building in Lynn, those are smaller units. It's downtown. It's urban. We don't expect people to have a ton of cars. 
got a robust amenity package. It has a 10,000, almost 12,000 square foot roof deck, pool on the roof, huge club spaces. I mean, I'm, I'm talking the 11th floor roof, not like a low roof. Huge amenity spaces inside club room, gaming room, sports lounge, co-working spaces, Uber lounge, all that kind of stuff that's designed to fit with that demographic. I think it's very important, but I think on smaller buildings, people miss the boat. You know, they put a common laundry room in and they're like, it's got amenities. <laughs> and I've done that before. We did Needham's Landing that we were like amenity rich. Has oh, an really? elevator. It has an elevator. Uh, yeah, right? It's 120 like, feet it could tall. Be a, it could luxury. be a walk up in the North End. You know, you've got an elevator. This is nice. No. Managing your own buildings. Uh, wicked over. Yeah. And I do it. Don't do it. Yeah. I do do it. And okay. it's wicked overrated. The, the one thing that it gives you advantage on is strictly controlling that building's budget when it comes to valuation and financing. You have much more control than a third-party manager who's just running amok with your money. I imagine you learn a lot too. On your future yeah. builds, you go, well, damn, this thing really killed me on the last building. We do, like, we do what we call a lessons learned meeting after every single construction closeout and every single lease up. And we make our leasing team give us the, the like, top five complaints. Okay, was it closet space? Was it lack of building storage? Was it the tightness of the parking garage? Was it that the elevator was too slow? What are these things? Maybe we can solve for them on the next building. Maybe we can't, but at least we know what they are. And you know, typically we can solve for some of that stuff. That's smart. Last one, Dan? Hardy siding. Panels or lap? Lap, lap. siding. Appropriately rated. Maybe, maybe overrated. Yeah, we'll go overrated. I have it on some projects right now. But we've used some alternates that are really good. So we like the boral siding. Way better than Hardy um, in terms of durability. You don't have to, true, ex, true exterior is what it's called. Boral true exterior. You don't have to like prime the ends and flash behind the joints and kind of all this other crazy stuff that you have to do with Hardy. We like Hardy panels. They're a good alternative to, to some of the more expensive stuff. And then we did, we did a bunch of select siding on a building, which was PVC, complete PVC siding package. Other than moving a lot in the sun, really good alternative. Are you doing direct ad- adhering to the, the building that you're doing? Let's just focus on Lynn, or are you doing something like a rain oh, screen? Rain screen. Yeah, 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 absolutely, rain screen. Um, Even on our smaller buildings now. Oh, okay. Yeah, we just you get too tight and you get too much water, too much issues with water. So we we'll have an envelope consultant on every project, whether it's big or small, and they're always going to push for a rain screen type system. Let the water behind it, let it flow down, let it drain out. Garage parking or off street parking? And did you see the article that thirty percent of uh, that was the parking and-or. spaces are not being utilized? Yeah, I believe it. Was that an and or, or was that? No, yeah, no, no, not again. an indoor. It was just basically off-street parking or in the unit, yeah, in the highly, building. Highly, highly, mar- highly market does not fit the fit the mold of underrated, overrated. This time I screwed up. <laughs> I, ca- I, I'm, I almost pulled it off with the. I pulled it off with the in wall or ceiling speakers. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> you got to catch me. All right, so obviously so, so parking, it depends. Yeah, it depends. I mean, look, look, our, our, in, the, in our suburban stuff, we'll use, we typically start with a base of 1.5 for the parking ratio, and it's usually, it's usually low, right? I mean, people drive in the suburbs. Our downtown Lynn project, 0.15 on the parking. 259 units, 48 parking spaces in a city lift automated system. So it just depends on the market. I, you have to have some, but, you know, in some markets, Agreed. people aren't going to drive. So appropriately rated. Appropriately rated, yeah, 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 yeah I would yeah. say so, yeah. Well, I'd it's say, great. hey, it's not often we get to talk to someone who can um, talk intelligently about IRRs and uh, <laughs> ground improvement and rain screens. So yeah. this has been a real pleasure. This is really, really, awesome. really good. Awesome. Thank you Thanks so much for Thanks joining for having us. me. How do folks get a hold of you or follow you if they're uh, interested in your apartments and Lynn uh, or in Procopio Companies? So they can go on the website, ProcopioCompanies.com. They can hit me on Instagram. We're pretty active on the social media, at Mike Procopio. They can catch Greg, my brother. He runs the corporate account at Procopio Companies. That's the easiest way. Awesome. 
Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, rating, reviewing. Yes. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you guys for sharing. I've noticed a bunch of people post stuff on LinkedIn and Insta, so we appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for the feedback. It's the only way we're going to grow, and we appreciate it. All right. We'll All see right. you on the next one. Take care.